from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday the 10th, and we have an amazing cram-packed show. We have David Ewing up first. He is one of the Oracle partners and the president of entrepreneur organization Austin. And then the diploma person, Lucy Voves. I've been talking about her all week. I love her business. Here we go. Got a good one for you. Please welcome David Ewing to the show. He is a very successful entrepreneur in the tech space. We will learn all about it. We've already been teasing him for escaping from California like we keep seeing in the papers and in the media. David went to the College of Cambridge, graduated there, and right after school started Motive which is a consulting group out of San Francisco, and it became an Oracle partner in 2005. Since then, it has grown to be the largest Oracle partner out there and has grown accordingly. He is also, as I said, he left California, the Austin Entrepreneur Organization president, which leads over 200 entrepreneurs there in the Austin area. David, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. All right. So what does it mean to be an Oracle partner? What is that? Well, at Motive, we believe that every company should have access to the same tools and technology that uh, the Fortune 500 use to improve sales, marketing, and service. And so we take Oracle technology that normally uh, medium-sized businesses just can't use effectively and we help them generate more sales on the top line, as well as stamp out operational costs so that they can see it on the bottom line um, using Oracle technology that uh, that helps them run their business and scale. Okay. So as a small, medium-sized business, what are the Oracle products I would want? What would they replace that I'm currently using? Well, in sales, marketing, and service, they have replacements for Salesforce.com that are far cheaper and scale better, help you with your intelligent selling so that you can guide your salespeople through the lead to cash process. They've got uh, configure price quote tools to help you make sure that you're pricing your products with the highest margin that you can while still winning the deal. They've got marketing automation platforms like Eloqua that help you engage your customers and have a personalized experience at scale. And they've got content tools that really allow you to centralize all of your video and your audio and your blog posts and your press releases and keep it in one place, regardless of whether you're sending it to your website, your mobile phone, or any other place where you want to push your content. And why would Oracle need this partnership? It seems like it's leaving a bunch of the stuff on the table, work and profit. Oh, no. Oracle technology is fantastic, but at the, on day one, it doesn't have any of your customers in it. It doesn't talk to any of your systems. It doesn't have any of your special processes that are ready to go. And I would akin it to, it's like having the best artist studio on the planet with the greatest paints, the best brushes, and the most bright canvas. 
but unless you know how to paint with it, you're going to be in trouble because <laughs> it's not going to look too good. And that's really where we come in. We, uh, we show our clients how to paint and, uh, and together we paint by numbers so that they, uh, they can produce their own masterpiece. All right. That makes sense. Who's your typical customer? I mean, obviously a small business, uh, any industries that you do more than others, do you run away from manufacturing? Uh, what's the bread and butter look like there, David? Well, before I moved to California, I was born and raised in Detroit, so I don't run from manufacturing. I, uh, I love manufacturing, but, uh, you know, in terms of what a, a business looks like, that makes sense for us. Um, usually about 50 million in revenue is the place where companies are really looking to scale and try to get to hundred million, 200 million, a half a billion. And then from there, so that's pretty much the starting point for us. But in terms of industries that really make sense, um, anyone doing business to business transactions. So everything from manufacturing, um, construction that's being done, especially the, in the tier and supply chain of, uh, of supply chain partners who, who then work for a general contractor and large construction, um, distribution, uh, consumer product goods, retail uh, on, on the supply chain side, all of those make sense for us, uh, as well as patients and healthcare, business to business banking. Those are all great places where you, the need for security, the need for scale, and the need to grow are all really there. Um, the list goes on. High tech is another one. There are 16 verticals in all that uh, that, that we work with and, uh, and help scale. And then uh, revenue-wise, yeah, like about 50 million and above, that's really kind of the sweet spot to really start working with Oracle. All right. Very interesting. And I can't wait to tell my son what you said about Salesforce. My son works at Salesforce and, uh, I love teasing him about it. So you'll help. Thank you. We appreciate that. All right. Tell him to bring it. Yes. <laughs> All right. Is it hard to become an Oracle partner? I mean, it seems like they would put out a book and say, if you comply with this, you're in, is it kind of like that? No, not really, because, you know, Oracle already has a lot of partners. And so um, trying to join and, and get into the mix, uh, they're not just looking for, for just anybody anymore. And they want people who have demonstrated a track record with success and can bring something more to the table than just technology. So at Motive, for example, we're very passionate about customer experience. And everything that we do is not just about bringing the technology and enabling it for the customer, but also to help our client with their customer experience. And so we do a lot of journey mapping and we do a lot of analysis around the moments that matter and how they can shape the customer experience to improve customer lifetime value. And so um, everyone who comes to Oracle and becomes a partner for tech enabled services using their platform has something else that they bring to the table. So yes, you've got to go through the certifications. Yes, you've got to have your uh, technical understanding, but you got to bring more. All right. And you're saying that your customer experience is what that is. So I don't know what journey mapping is or moments that matter. Moments matter. You, know, I got my wife kissed me, uh, you know, we had an anniversary, we had a baby that was born. Those are easy. To well, that's great. So those are moments that matter in your personal life, but in any relationship that you have with a, with a, a business that you work with, you have moments that matter. Uh, an easy one, an easy example, and I hate to pick on the airline industry because I do it all the time, is how many moments that matter do we have in, in, in our airline travel, right? And it's moments like uh, the minute the flight gets delayed and we're way late in an airport. And we all have those horror stories that we tell our friends ad nauseum about all those things that happen to us. Well, 
those are part of your journey with the airline. But if you buy a car, you have a journey. If you have, if you, you know, just buy a product and, and have it to your house, there are people on YouTube who will show you what it looks like to unbox that product. So you can get a feel for what that moment is of, of unboxing. And some people are really into that. Um, those are moments that matter. And so the key thing is, is that you're going to always have good moments with your customers and you're going to have bad moments. And those are the moments that matter, the high highs and the low lows. And it's really important in your journey. And that's what we map out. We kind of map the journey that a customer has from the minute they've heard of your company to the minute they've, they've done their last transaction with you. Um, what are all those moments? And, and the key is, while everyone's going to have bad moments, the key is how do you respond and how do you change the customer's attitude at those moments that matter? So that instead of walking down the street and going with your competitor, they come back and give you another chance. Or if it's a great moment that matters, how do we get them to tell their friends? But that's really what customer journey mapping and customer experience is all about. I see. So David, my very, very first business back when I was in my twenties was summer camps. I started a summer camp company and it grew big. Uh, we ended up with 90 locations around the world, but the first location I ever had, David was Stanford. And the first week we were there, we proceeded to burn a building, not down. We did that later. That was later. Okay. I just want to be distinct here. We burned a building period later comes later in the story. Okay. But nevertheless, I, I was at the, what's her name? Uh, the lady who was my contact at Stanford, I was at her office the next morning before she got there so that I was able to tell her the story before the fire department did. And that's why she said, I got invited back all the years to come. And as you said, she even told her friends that story. Precisely. You took a very negative moment, burning down a building, not down, and you changed. not down. I can't, I told you. <laughs> not down. You, I, I made it Starting very clear to you, David, that we only there burned we it. Not burned down. it. That's later. Gotcha. Gosh. But you took a moment that mattered and you changed the attitude. And as a result, you got a recurring customer. So yes, that's exactly a great illustration of, of customer experience in, in action. Then there was the time that we flooded the MIT computer lab. That's totally different too. A different story. Just because we built an ice skating rink, who would have thought they'd put a computer lab underneath it? It's not our fault. Now, were you able to shape that moment that mattered? You know, uh, those were our two bedrock uh, tent pillar customers. You know, uh, we were Stanford and MIT sponsored by uh, Intel and Microsoft. How can we help you? And that's how we answered the phone. So those were the, the two comp or the two locations that held the whole company up. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, if you got kids, otherwise it's loud and painy and have snot coming out of their face all the time. Now, what does motive turn into next? What does it do? What are you, what is its goal? Uh, what happens? Well, the big, the big thing that everybody is on everyone's mind is what is the role of AI, right? How is AI going to shape everything in our lives? And, um, and that's a great question. And so one of the things we're thinking about is how do we responsibly use artificial intelligence to make customer experience even better? Because the, the other thing about customer experience is 
you can't just have a good attitude in order to make a great customer experience. That just doesn't scale. You can't grow to 50 million or 100 million or 200 million on just saying, gosh darn it, we're going to try harder. Um, you've got to have systems and tools and processes in place that really are clever and smart and well-designed and agile. And the promise of AI is the promise of being able to make even smarter decisions and push the decision about when to give customers discounts or to apologize or to um, you know give them free refunds or whatever it is based on greater and greater levels of intelligence. And I think that as we start exploring that, motive is really at the forefront of trying to figure out how do we communicate with people using AI? How do we use AI to, to, to improve that customer experience? And, th and that's really where we're headed. And so a lot of our work and a lot of our recent products and, and announcements are all related to that. But AI is where customer experience goes bad. That's what that's what needs to be fixed now with customer experience is, you know, push three for this, two for, you know, all of these. Now, is that customer experience? Is that that's AI? Customer no. Experience. But even if you had a, you know, so what, <laughs> what my mind goes to then, David, is a human that I talk to that has better stuff because of AI. So, Jim, that is precisely what we're the attitude we're trying to fix, right? Because in the past, you you can get just as many people telling you that they don't want to talk to a person, that they want a streamlined automated experience. But regardless, regardless of whether you want a human or you don't want a human, the point is companies that will win are companies that can adopt and listen to their customers. No different than any time in the past ever. And so the key is making sure that you're using AI to be smart about that. So that when you call, there is no push three, right? Maybe when you call, if you're a VIP customer, we treat you like that. If you want to talk to a human being, great. Or I think it's not too far-fetched to say that one day it will be indistinguishable between talking to a human and talking to an AI that, uh, that can replicate everything that a human can, but it's the power to make decisions that can solve problems for you quickly. Either way, it's about attitude. And it's really about changing your attitude and making sure that we're addressing your needs differently from the other person's needs and making sure everybody is getting the personalized attention they're looking for. That That's really the promise of AI. Are you really saying that there are people that would prefer to speak to a tree, a telephone tree than a, hu a real human? Telephone really? trees are not AI. Well, no, okay, no yeah, but they would rather, they would rather non-human than human. Oh, hundred percent. Really? I'm one of them. Yeah. Wow. If I, if I can go to How a website, and sell I wonder if this is an age thing. How old are you? <laughs> I'm a generation X guy. I'm 47. So, um, but you know, I mean, I, that's really the difference is some people would prefer to just have an automated quick conversation. I mean, when was the last time you went into the bank, Jim, to go withdraw funds from the bank? Probably a long time ago. There are well, still some customers who I like to do that. I actually use the bank and... Uh, it's one of my primary lessons. I use the bank all the time and I get better service because of it. I can go into most of the places where I bank and they know my name and they know my kid's name and they'll do things like cash a check. I don't have money for, or open a business account that doesn't yet exist incorporated and doesn't have its EIN number because they know my kids' names, you know? Uh, those are things and, that have all really happened before. Um, 
And that's great. And that does separate you from a large majority of the market where people would prefer not to go to the bank and they would prefer to work with an ATM or they prefer to just use you know Venmo or something else and skip the entire process altogether. So but customer Venmo experience or the ATM isn't going to give me 10 grand if I don't have it. The bank will. <laughs> You your know, bank, I mean, apparently. You're a good I want to go there. Well, uh, <laughs> any good bank will. You know, I mean, if people don't know that, they need to learn that. If you're a good customer at the bank, have a long history, and go in and say, "I don't have ten thousand, but I'm going out of town and I need it now," they'll cash that check. Um, still in today's world, and I really have opened a business account that for the business that does not exist yet, um, which is completely illegal. But a, but the ATM <laughs> so if you want to commit crimes, folks, stick with Jim, but, uh, no, I'm kidding. I just want um, a higher level of service. You know, I want real people to make decisions and machines and, won't break the rules. Whereas people will, you know, and that's why I sit at the bar too. Uh, I sit at the bar because bartenders will give me more free drinks than machines. So all of these things sound really great for you, but I'm not sure that the bar owner feels so great about that. And uh, if they do, the key is, is how do you systematize that, right? Because everything has to happen at scale and everything has to, to work at a, in, a, in a scalable way. And, and so the key with AI, which is different than pick one, two or three on the telephone, is can you make sure that you are personalizing your experience for the way that person wants to be treated. And the big problem that you have when you bring in uh, people into the equation is that they have to follow a script. They have to follow a standard. Very, very rarely do large companies give latitude to people at that, at that level. And so if you're trying to personalize at scale, you've got to be able to do that. And that's really where AI can do things that we just can't do with human beings right now. All right. Tell us about EO. We've had quite a few EO guests on the show. Most recently we had miles Sherman, who was president of the whole thing a little bit ago. Um, I think he's from Houston. Do you yeah. know miles? Yeah, that, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, and so we had some interesting so, insights from him. So assume that we're already novice EO talkers. All right, David. Sure. Tell us about EO Austin. So Entrepreneurs Organization of Austin is the largest chapter in the central region. We have 230 members and our goal is to unlock the potential of every entrepreneur. So uh, within Austin, that means our city and our people. And we're trying to make sure that every entrepreneur in Austin has access to the same tools and techniques to provide leadership for the company, for vision, for operations, cash, planning. And we do a series of different things to make sure that they clear not only their professional development hurdles and become stronger in the boardroom, but Entrepreneurs Organization is also about helping people with all of the other challenges in their life. Because as an entrepreneur, it can be very lonely. And for that reason alone, we have organizations that are confidential called forums within our in our chapter. And the forum is really kind of like that tribe where you can go. And if you're having personal problems, family problems, as well as business problems, you've got six or seven other entrepreneurs that you can turn to and they can share, you know, experiences around the things that have, that have happened to them and, uh, and really make sure that entrepreneurs don't feel alone as they go on these incredibly crazy journeys to try to become, you know, successful. 
you know, when I became an entrepreneur, David, my friend group had to change. You're yeah. referring to? Yeah, absolutely. Referring yeah, your inner circle. About that. Give me your thoughts on your friend group as an entrepreneur. One thing we hear all the time in entrepreneurs organization is I became successful as an entrepreneur and I didn't feel right talking to my friends about the problems that I had because suddenly when millions of dollars are on the line, whether they be losing millions or in some cases, hopefully gaining millions, it just was something that they couldn't talk about. We call that the the 5%, which is the 5% best things that are happening in life and the 5% worst things that are happening in life. And I think, you know, while it's really important to maintain those relationships with those friends, what entrepreneurs need is they need a group of people to talk to about the best five and the worst five. And, and that's really where entrepreneurs organization comes in. And so an inner circle is a key success factor. I, uh, I was just talking to my team about that today and who you have in your inner circle really dictates your success. And so entrepreneurs need to have other entrepreneurs in their inner circle so that they can really get the, the most out of it and make the best decisions for the business when, when the crises come. And let's face it, the crises always come. I'm not sure you need to keep the old friends around. I'm not sure that, well, I, I, as a matter of fact, they may be the problem a huge part of the time. That is certainly possible. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, on a case by case basis, but you're right. Um, sometimes if there's people in your life that are, are, you know, let's face it, like sometimes the word toxic is required. If you've got toxic people in your life, you can't keep those people around and expect to thrive and, and you, nor will you be able to help them. And I think it's really important for people to understand that, that they have to put those people, they have to put some boundaries between them, even if it's a family member. And, um, and they've got to go seek a friend group that can really help them become their best. Yeah. I think that's a, a hard part of being an entrepreneur on part that we don't really talk about very much, but it does require a lot of personal sacrifices in, in unusual ways. And you know, that thing about you are the five people you talk to the most, uh, that's one of the reasons I want to get rid of some of the, the past perhaps I, I, I think that almost always there's something in the past that needs to be edited out as well. David, what are some of your entrepreneur obsessions or pet peeves or silly little anecdotes? One of my pet peeves, David, is the corporate cast off. He's just quit 32 years at Exxon, but now he's going to start a business. He doesn't really know what it's going to be yet. But go on over to his office. Sally, his receptionist, has shirts. He's got a, a wonderful shirt with his logo <laughs> on it for you. He wants you to have a logo shirt, and Sally will give it to you. Um, I'm still working on my model, but um, anyway, what are your yeah. – that's mine. What's yours? All right, so you've got a pretender uh, pet peeve, and I, I totally get that. My pet peeve's at the other end of the extreme. I, I, I'm going to come right out and say this. It's not going to make me a very popular guy. I've got a pet peeve of private equity. I, it drives me nuts to watch private equity come in and ruin companies. And, and they ruin companies in one of two ways. They, they ruin companies by destroying cultures and, and just eliminating all the key people that, that made a company go. And they do it with arrogance often and without you know, any kind of thought about where, where the company's going. And then the second thing that they do is they usually take all the quality out of the products. So if it's not raising prices, which, hey, I'm a big fan of raising prices. I think that's great. But, but what I find to be dishonest is offering the same product at the same price, but then gutting all of the, 
the cost out of it and the quality and the, the promise that got you there. And when that happens, that drives me nuts. And I've had too many entrepreneurs come through EO and sell out to private equity thinking that, you know, the private equity said all the right things about how, you know, we want to leave the management team in place. We want to, we don't want to run your business. But then as soon as they get in there, they absolutely got the entire vision that, that everybody had as an entrepreneur. And, you know, the thing about entrepreneurs is while everyone, everybody likes a chunk of change, no doubt about it, but that's not why people become entrepreneurs, right? You become an entrepreneur because you want to see something be different in the world and there's no better way to change it than with entrepreneurship. And so to see that happen and then to reach that penultimate excess when somebody else goes, gosh, I would like to own that. And then they just wreck it. That drives me crazy. I can't stand that. That's my pet peeve. But it's theirs to wreck, right? I mean, you know, if, if they get their incremental income by eliminating service, you know, uh, it's theirs to do it to. And the guy got the change. You know, your friend yep. got to walk with the chunk, as you said. Yep. But it's also that 34-year veteran of a, uh, of a Fortune 500 company's right to sit in his office with his T-shirt and his pretender secretary oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. saying That's, he yep, can do it. Yep. So, yeah. So, but, but it's still my pet peeve. So, yeah, there you I go. I get it. I get it. Uh, <laughs> it is amazing how they all say the exact same thing, that they are the unique ones they're the ones who are going to be cared about people they all say the same thing and then all the entrepreneurs suffer the same thing so some one side seems to be uh exaggerating a little bit perhaps agreed david it's a fascinating career so do you like austin better now are you glad you made the move is it a better quality of life for you and the team well, I'll tell you what, after, uh, what is it? A hundred consecutive days of a hundred degrees and most of them over 110. I don't know about this summer. So, uh, cool. My, my enthusiasm for Austin cooled with that heat. I will tell you that much, but short of that, I will tell you that Austin's a wonderful town. Um, and it's been, it's a great place. It's a vibrant city. Um, it's it got a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, a lot of diverse opinions too. And I really like that. I think it's a thoughtful place. And, uh, and you really don't know who you're going to be talking to, both politically as well as, you know, any, any other measurement you want to do. You just don't know. And as a result, I think everybody's a little bit more respectful and, uh, and I think very, very thoughtful about what they say. And, uh, boy, I really like that. It's a great town. Well, I hope you enjoy it and enjoy the Texas income tax. <laughs> yep. Pay that every year. Right on time, Jim. How do we find out more? Follow you online. Find out more about Motive. All of the above. Yep, Jim. You will find Motive at MotiveCX.com. And uh, you'll find me. Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn forward slash in forward slash David G. Ewing. Fantastic. David G, right? David G. Ewing. Yep. Right. G stands for Gardner. So. All right. I'm not telling you mine. It's too horrible. David, thank you so much for being with us. And we'd love to have you back. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jim. Take care. And we will be right back. We are back and still so very appreciative that you are with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest and a really cool business. It's one of those that you've probably bought from. If you have anything hanging on your wall from your college or master's degree or whatever, 
Lucy Voves is with us. She is the founder of DiplomaFrame.com. She started as a side hustle some 30 years ago. She was working at Procter & Gamble and started Churchill Classics as her side gig before they even had side gigs. She invented them. Now they sell officially licensed diploma stuff for thousands of universities online and at Barnes and Nobles and places like that. Lucy, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Did you know that you invented the side hustle, the gig? Well, I, I don't think I really invented it, but it worked out great for me. <laughs> yes, it did. All right. Tell us the story. How did number one happen? Why did you, how'd you fall into this? I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur as a teenager and in college, I was, I didn't want to get a job. I didn't want to work for anybody else. So I was peddling lemonade and washing cars and I started importing African jewelry with a friend and selling it in college. And then I actually started a photography business doing party pictures in college for fraternities and sororities. So I've always kind of been dabbling like that. I started my career after graduating from college uh, working for Procter & Gamble in brand management, and I did that for almost seven years and learned a lot, would never change anything, but I did get restless. And when I got my first office a few years in, I really wanted a picture of the main campus uh, centerpiece, and I couldn't find one. I thought, well, I can't be the only person who wants a picture of their college campus on the wall. I went to Dartmouth. It's a beautiful place. So um, I sought out and commissioned an artist to do a painting of Dartmouth Hall, and we did a series of signed and numbered prints. And then uh, his wife taught me how to frame, and I went up to Dartmouth and stood on the street corner and peddled framed artwork. Uh, and that was how the business started. I was in Newtown, Connecticut, and I named the business after the main street with a big flagpole, which is called Churchill Road. And I made up Churchill Classics because it kind of sounded like an art gallery. And while the business was home-based, I thought, well, if I could have a place, that's where I would have it. So um, the business started doing something completely different, which was campus artwork. Uh, I did great on the street corner. I got into a little local shop that went bankrupt, so I learned about that. And then I got into the main campus store and did really well. We added an additional scene, and I always went up there uh, to help with selling at big events, so it gave me the opportunity to talk to and listen to customers. And I had a lot of people who said, hey, I love your art, but could you frame my diploma to match? And uh, the Dartmouth diploma is in Latin. So I also had people who said, can you write on there somewhere Dartmouth College so people can read where we went to school? And so I figured out how to engineer foil embossed matting for frames and started selling diploma frames, uh, and that was really the point at which I realized that this was a great idea. People keep graduating every year. It's a milestone moment in life. It's a big celebration. So um, it, it just really 
uh, took off at that point. And I, I did scale the business relatively slowly because I was self-funded and we can talk more about that, but that was my, that was my journey and I didn't end up doing what I started out doing. No, but that's a very cool story and, uh, it's pretty damn impressive, Lucy. I mean, that's all I can think of. At this point, though, you're still only selling to Dartmouth, right? Or through Dartmouth, Dartmouth scenes, Dartmouth. It, right. In the beginning, that's how I started out. And then I was like, okay, this is working. So I need to, what other campuses have a Latin diploma? I was inclined to go to other Ivy Leagues. So I went to Yale, Princeton, um, I ended up then, I did very well. It seemed like the model was working. I eventually went to Syracuse, and I went to the University of Connecticut, and they both have a diploma written in English. So um, I still did really well with it. And it was interesting when I went to the University of Connecticut, because we're located in Connecticut, so that's close by. And, you know, I was selling for myself. I was doing a lot of things for myself at that point. And um, I went to the buyer and she said, well, I have this diploma frame like in the back of the store on a dusty shelf and it costs like $30. And I was pitching to her a frame that was going to cost 90 or or $100. And she's like, I can't sell this $30 thing. How am I going to sell that? And I said, you know, let look at it. I mean, this is a lifetime achievement. This is something that people want to proudly hang on their wall. Parents and family members are eager to have a nice gift to give to recognize graduation. Um, so she wouldn't buy any stock from me, but agreed to let me hang one frame in the wall with a little uh, brochure holder. And if she took any orders, I would fill those orders and ship them out. So that was how I got started uh, at UConn, and essentially that was what happened at several campuses that were more skeptical. This was in the early 90s when college bookstores mostly sold school supplies and maybe a t-shirt or two. So this was expensive inventory, um, and it frankly didn't necessarily sell if it sat on the back shelf and got dusty. So one of the things I discovered, and I was helped by the fact that I had kind of cut my teeth working at Procter & Gamble in marketing, was that I had to help these bookstores be successful in marketing diploma frames. And the target audience wasn't necessarily the graduate. It was mom and dad. So we started developing brochures to mail home to mom and dad several weeks ahead of graduation to promote the sales and drive traffic into the bookstore. And um, I learned at first I gave those brochures to the bookstores and asked them to mail them out. And then I realized like half the time that wasn't happening. So my model really became that we had to drive the marketing do the mailings on behalf of the bookstore, make sure they got out, and then we could really drive a lot of traffic um, and be very successful. So that was kind of how it went. I was self-funded for the first seven years. So I 
learned that it took me about two years to make a new campus profitable. So I had to be thoughtful about where I went next and how many new campuses I took on. So that was definitely a governor on my early growth and probably one of my regrets would have been that I didn't go get funding faster. Um, But honestly, in the 90s, as a woman business owner, I I didn't really know where to go. And that was just my instinct. I knew that I had proven the concept to myself, and I knew that I could make it work. Uh, The silver lining of that is that I never took venture funding, and I own 100% of my business but the growth was more gradual than it probably would have otherwise been. You're the easiest interview ever, Lucy. I don't even have to ask questions. You just answer, you just volunteer the next thing. You did awesome explaining everything. And you gave me so many things to go back and ask about. Uh, Congratulations on not taking the funding, by the way. I think you did the right thing. And I know it was slower, but you succeeded. And so, and as you said, now you own a hundred percent and you're the winner. So can we jump to the end of the story, Lucy? How big is the company now? What are you doing now? How many universities, dollar, whatever you want to share. And obviously you don't share whatever you don't want to. We make diploma frames for over 2,000 colleges and universities. We also make frames for professional associations that issue credentials, particularly legal, medical, and finance, the kind of credentials that you need to or want to hang on your wall. Um, And then we also do uh, a program, interestingly, for the American Kennel Club, Uh, We had a customer who bought a diploma frame from us who was involved with the AKC, and they issue uh, doggy pedigrees. Yeah, both of my dogs are pedigreed dogs. And certifications, absolutely. I'm proud of that. Right. I'm prouder of that than my kids. (laughs) You'd be surprised. I know their lineage. I know my kids' lineage. It sucks. <laughs> that's that's funny. So yeah, so they wanted frames that said American Kennel Club yeah. with the AKC seal, and we started making those. Interestingly, on a unit basis, we sell more AKC frames than we sell for any college or university in the United States. Um, that doesn't surprise so, me. Yeah. <laughs> more important. Uh, that's right. That's right. So. You know, it's interesting how uh, that seems like a real departure from being in the collegiate and very serious academic world, but it was really just an application of exactly the same technology and just making a frame for a different use. So um, that's become a really big program for us. We've also had the good fortune of being an Inc. 5000 fast growth company 12 different times uh, since I started the business. And uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I got outreach from Mansueto Ventures that owns Inc. Magazine and Fast Company. 
and they were putting out an RFP for someone to do recognition products for all of the different award programs they do, and the biggest one they do is Inc. 5000, and they were interested in a vendor who had been one of their fast-growth companies. So uh, we were able to win that business, and I think one of the things, it's kind of an interesting story how we won that business. Uh, The previous relationship was much more manual. Um, They were exchanging, you know, emailed orders, um, a lot of back-and-forth work. And what we decided to do was invest in the technology so that they could sell the awards, the winners could choose all different kinds of statistics about their award and build them into the frame in the form of medallions or custom wording if they wanted to highlight how they ranked in their industry, how they ranked in their state by a number of different ways of cutting it. And then we have people who win multiple times who are interested in showing that. So we created... um, the API and electronic connection so that all of the details about a specific order could be passed electronically between us and them, and then straight down to the equipment that we have here. So it dramatically streamlined the ordering process, and I think we were also able to bring a lot of creativity and freshness to what those products look like. Um, I feel like a personal warrior against the old-fashioned walnut plaque. There are a lot of much nicer, more colorful, and interesting alternatives for awards. So that's a place where we're focused in the future, and we've done very well with, with Inc. and Fast Company Magazine on that front. And now you have so much competition with everybody, Shutterfly, bunches of people, I would assume. Uh, How do you stack up? Are you the number one in the space? Do you have 40% market share? Do you have any idea? It's hard to gather that kind of stuff, I would imagine. That's true. Nielsen doesn't really, nobody really reports on the diploma frame and recognition category. So, um, we are uh, definitely um, a leader, if not the leader in the category. We have led for sure on the innovation front. Um, we have a significant amount of our business working with college bookstores on campuses all around the country. And those are relationships, some of them that are you know, 15, 20, or even as much as 30 years old, having that physical presence on campus where parents go at graduation, students are in that store, that physical presence is really important. And it's also important to the campuses that they have high-quality recognition products and what's better for them in terms of engagement and connection with graduates after they leave than if their diploma is hanging on the wall and it looks awesome. So, you know, that's really a valuable partnership on many fronts. Uh, From a competition standpoint, there are very, very few companies that hold the licenses to reproduce the school names and the school seals. 
it's difficult to get that. Uh, back when I started the business and in the 90s, if you would make anything with a school name and a school seal on it, it was not hard to get a license because they were looking for merchandise. And uh, that's definitely changed. There's much more interest in in streamlining in fewer vendors. There's a lot of compliance um, and auditing requirements when you're producing collegiate products. So, you know, in a way, it's it's been a, a benefit for us because we've built our company around how to do it and it's a competitive advantage and we don't have a we don't have a whole lot of competition our biggest competitors are companies like uh, Herf Jones and Jostens that are probably yeah, familiar names yeah yeah the rings caps gowns they're in high school they're in college they're dramatically bigger than we are um so well, that's good. That's you know, someone to buy you out. You got to have someone bigger so you have someone to sell to. <laughs> well, one of those companies, Herf Jones, bought out one of my major competitors back in about 2005. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've retained our entrepreneurial DNA, and it's been a real advantage. Um, we've pivoted a few times dramatically. And I think those are the things that have really given the business a lot of juice and allowed us to to grow more. So, so far, it's been good for us to be smaller and more entrepreneurial. Uh, but it always scared me because I, I knew I didn't, you know, necessarily have as much money. Um, but it's it's worked out well. Yes, I would say so. How did you deal with that Internet thing? When it snuck up on, I mean, you had a business based, uh, you know, b- built before the internet really became retail and based brick and mortar. And so how did you transition there? That's an interesting story. Uh, my brother-in-law had a good friend who worked for Microsoft in the very, very early days. And one year at Thanksgiving, he said to me, if you could have a website, what do you think you would want your website to be? And I said, well, I, I guess like diplomaframe.com. So I bought that domain and we built a website very early. In fact, we had a website before a lot of our bookstore partners even had a website. And we used it for the first bunch of years, probably five or six as a referral portal and as a selling tool. Um, we would support the bookstore by creating a web page exclusively for them, like the University of Connecticut, everything we sold for them. And then we would provide a link to their website if they had one and their phone number and all their contact information and all the purchases went through the bookstore. So um, that allowed us to get new distribution and to have some visibility on the internet for our products even before some of our customers had that. So for the first, um, up through the Great Recession, uh, which was 789, uh, we were essentially 100% wholesale. And that changed during the Great Recession. This was one of the big pivots that I talked about. Uh, because what we saw was that a lot of our bookstore partners 
had a dramatically reduced open to buy. So they didn't have as much money to be purchasing merchandise for the store, and our merchandise was expensive. So that was a problem. We had customers who wanted to buy a frame, and if the bookstore didn't have any in stock, it would not be on their website. Our website would say you have to go there and buy it, but they don't have any. So we pretty quickly realized that this was going to be a significant problem. Um, and we tackled that on a couple of fronts. The first one um, was that we developed the capability on our website for people to be able to customize their diploma frame, change the molding, change the matte colors, and make it coordinate better with their environment if that was important to them. And we said to bookstore, and we also started offering graduate school options so that the named graduate schools could be shown on the matting. And we went back to bookstores and said, look, you carry your core selection of three, four, however, whatever your core number of diploma frames that you can move through at a, at a good rate and then link out to us. And if we sell a customized frame or a graduate school frame, we'll pay you a commission on that sale. So that allowed us to get outbound links, which improved the strength and validity of our own website. It allows us to start having an e-commerce site. And we had people also who came to us and they wanted to buy from three or four schools. And in the old model, we'd have to say, we have to call this store and that store and this store. And finally, we could actually accommodate people who wanted to buy frames from a few different schools. So that was one of our big changes in the Great Recession. The second one was we were moving into an ERP system which handled everything from accounting all the way through manufacturing. And we do so much customization that we have like hundreds of thousands of variations of different frames for all different schools. And prior to that time, when we sold an order to a bookstore, we shipped it out in a display-ready box, which was essentially almost like a pizza box with a handle. And a student could carry it out of the bookstore, but the bookstore couldn't ship that. Um, if they paid extra, they could get UPS or FedEx-ready packaging, and sometimes they would split their order and take a little of each. And um, that created a lot of complexity in the ERP system because we had so many different items, and then we could package it two different ways, um, and it created just space constraints with two types of boxes for every size. So what we did was uh, we worked with with a company called Sealed Air and we developed a technology for a suspension pack that was still relatively compact, safe for shipping, had a handle on it, and we started shipping all of our product into the bookstores in what we called our smart box. And it allowed them to make their inventory more flexible. So if students came in, they could walk out of the store with it. If they had inventory left over at the end of graduation, they could slap a shipping label on it and they could ship it out. So the combination when that open to buy money was short 
of getting them to focus on their highest velocity frames and providing this packaging solution that made their inventory more flexible um, was really the key to transforming the business. And within about three years, our business was 50% wholesale and 50% direct-to-consumer, and it still remains about in that range at this point. And I bet you 100 bucks that if you go through your database, you'll find my mother's name. Oh, I bet I'll have to look. Sounds yes. good. Well, you know, I my father was a doctor, and so all doctors okay. have to have all the frames. Absolutely, junk, you know, right. And totally. my mother was, uh, you know, the type of person that would have done this. You know, she was big into that and liked to make the montages, you know, and big frames with all the stuff in it, you know. And so, uh, and I, I know I got my stuff. Um, framed and everything so i'm sure i'm in there and well thank you that's terrific well lucy it's an amazing story uh if you want to thank me thank me for not making fun of your alma mater so oh (laughs) where did you go to school i went across the hill on the other side of the mountain at middlebury oh that's a great school though awesome uh and one of our customers love it so i'm sure i'm sure and uh so you're, you're, it's an amazing story what you've done. I'm really impressed. You've done everything right, and you led. The the thing that impressed me the most is uh, you leading the bookstores and helping them along and getting them ready to sell your product so many different times. And it would have been so easy to stop at diplomas, but the way you've gone into the Inc. 500 things and all of those, that's just amazing. So you've done a great job. Well, thank it's a really you. Cool story. A pluses. Thank you. Especially That's, for a Dartmouth yeah, thank you. student. You know, for a Dartmouth, it's like a double plus, triple plus. So. Well, and we had another big curveball when COVID happened and graduation was canceled. Yep. And that was For another sure. time when we had a big pivot and we had to kind of, you know, work with bookstores and universities and help kind of lead towards, okay, what's graduation going to look like? How do you keep people engaged? And our business had a very big spike in COVID, um, which, you know, it was a, uh, for, even for us, a surprising outcome when we started at a moment when, Oh, what do we do now? Graduation's canceled. Yep. How do we find out more, buy some diplomas? So we are online at diplomaframe.com and also our frames are available in bookstores around the country. Our brand is Churchill Classics, which goes way back to that early story when I when I uh, named it after the main street in the town where I started the business in my basement. And uh, we hope everybody will, will check us out online and think about us if you're looking for a terrific recognition gift for somebody who's completed their education and done a great job. Lucy, fantastic story. Thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you, and have a great day, Jim. I appreciate it. We are out of time. Have a great day, a great weekend. Take care. Bye now.